Hello there. I'm Christopher Lee, and you, you are very welcome at this week's Sit Rep Roundtable on a sunny but breezy London town. In the next 60 minutes, Iraq, pack-up-and-go time, one view of what's on the Chancellor's chopping block for the MOD, why the needle's out for VIPs. What have we learned in 10 years of CBRN control? Not very much. And the arms gravy train in the Middle East. And are most of us really colourblind? Well, the official handover of command from British to the United States took uh, place earlier today in uh, Basra. So, really, it's back-up-and-go back time for the British. Um, with me in the studio, the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor, John Dickey, and the global affairs analyst from the University College London, Dr. Martin McCauley. Also with us is the filmmaker, Paul Atherton. Um, Paul, I want to start with you. Um, it, it's, it's not the area we normally look at, but thinking as a filmmaker, you look at the world through... It's not a pinhole, is it? But, <laughs> but you know, you, you, you look at the world and you see things we don't. Sure. Your image, if you had to create images of uh, the British in Iraq since uh, 2003, what do you personally think you'd be looking for? Um, I think we'd probably... We, we'd want to get an inside story on the soldiers on the ground. I think we, we, everything's consumed from a British perspective through how the media portray it. And I think we'd, we'd probably want to create a much more personal viewpoint of the experiences there and the impacts there and the impacts of what's happening here when pe- troops come back and people are injured and the kind of reporting that happens here, how that actually impacts on the troops on the ground over there. Right. John Dickey, I was thinking um, about the war, uh, that it might just come up to the title of the most controversial war in the modern history of Downing Street. That's Probably true. Uh, the only other competitor is the Suez War, but it was a much shorter affair. No, it will be controversial from the very start because it was a war fought uh, under false pretenses. It was fought allegedly because there were thought to be uh, weapons of mass destruction. In fact, it was switched then to a war to remove Saddam Hussein and restore democracy. Well, Saddam Hussein was removed, but I don't know how much democracy is there, and if you look at it in terms of the social fabric of the country, there's still a great shortage of water, electricity, and uh, uh, the normal social uh, advances of living in a a state like uh, Iraq. I seem to remember, John, it was you who coined the phrase, not uh, of WMD, as weapons of mass disappearance. Well, that was it. Uh, They disappeared before we were there to look for them, in fact. I mean, the warnings were there. The, the, The... the dodgy dossier didn't hide the fact that, uh, you know, there really was nothing there to go for. Mm. Martin McCauley. <clears throat> Is Iraq the first war in which Britain was a junior partner, uh, if you like, secondary to the United States, where if you go back to Suez, uh, Britain was in the cockpit? Britain well, that was because the Americans wouldn't turn up. Well, they were, well I think the Second World War... Well, they were the second partner in the D-Day landings in Normandy, and the yes. American no, no, landings were much bigger than past, ours. If you go past 1945, that's different, 1945. It's, it's the first case first time, and this may be one of the reasons why the war is so unpopular in many minds, uh, Britain is a junior partner. Uh, so therefore, what is the national interest? Can I, no, I don't think it's a junior partner. Just to think that the public were not properly uh, consulted and Parliament wasn't given a chance to vote properly on the war. I think the services did a magnificent job under the circumstances in which they were committed, but the very fact of being committed under a specific you know, misunderstanding or misconception was at fault. But you were talking uh, about the difficulties of the Iraqis themselves, if you look at where the British forces have been in Basra, in that southern area of Iraq, the four provinces, um, look at their reconstruction uh, figures. They're quite impressive. I mean, 120 miles, as far as I remember, of, of, of water piping that's been laid. Um, and that sounds all very well until you work out there's also 3,700 Iraqis who have been killed, that 111 British soldiers have been killed in action 25 have died for them from their wounds, another 40-odd uh, have killed uh, or died from other reasons. I mean, the first one died, I think, from sunstroke. Mm. Now, given all that, what's still interesting to me, um, Paul Atherton, again from the filmmaker's point of view, through your lens, you see that the public support never failed for the services. Not for the services, no. It, I, um, I, and I think what was most interesting mm-hmm. was the protests against the war and how they were dismissed. I think that was the first time I've ever experienced in politics where the government just almost ignored 
the people on the street outside number 10 kind of going we're not happy with this this is a ludicrous scenario withdraw now but i think the the public never ever dropped their guard down for supporting the soldiers out there because i think they felt that they were doing the job that they were they were sent to do and they were doing it as best as they could um and also they were putting themselves in harm's way any ideas martin john what you would if you reflected about legacies which is an awful thing to do at this stage but what was achieved john a certain amount of stability, um, removing a certain amount of brutality, uh, giving some sort of hope for a future, but um, it's still very much a cockpit there of competing rivalries and competing religious uh, tensions. Until you remove these tensions, I don't think you can say that it's been a great deal I have to achieved. tell people, because you won't be able to say it, Martin is wagging his finger, and I have to say it's a very personal thing. Yeah. One of my daughters was a student of Martin's, and I remember she used to say to me, oh, she said, my tutor, Dr. Macaulay, he always wags his finger, but I thought he was wagging it at me, wasn't he? He was just wagging it at the world. Martin, you've been wagging your finger at the world of Iraq. What did you see? I think it's the last intervention of British forces in Iraq. I think uh, the lesson will be learnt that you can't, a foreign power, a non-Islamic, non-Muslim power, uh, cannot intervene in Iraq and impose... Uh, democracy or any other form of government which is not Iraqi and uh, it will be up to the Iraqis, the Shia al-Maliki government uh, to come to a compromise with the Sunnis and the Kurds and they will do that themselves they will probably call on the Americans who may stay here because we have difficulties with the Sunnis and so on, but I think from Britain's point of view Britain will be out of it Okay. The other part of the legacy is that uh, it, it has been made definite now that you cannot take this country to war as a prime minister without the support of a vote in the House of Commons. I think that gives the people a chance to record their views. Are you, may, are you both saying that the chances are of Britain ever going to a war like this in a coalition from the Americans? I mean, supposing they wanted to go into the, I don't know, Central Asian Republics, Martin, which is quite possible, mm-hmm. we would not turn up for that one. No, I don't think so, because... Uh, Tony Blair made a fundamental mistake, but he believes he's right. And I don't believe that in the future a British government, uh, a British PM, could not uh, involve Britain in a war without the permission of Parliament. I think if, well, that's a fact now, yes. if there was an emergency uh, mm-hmm. and you had to take a, a, a key decision very, very quickly, mm-hmm. he would take the decision and then report to Parliament. OK, uh, listening on the line from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, we really want to talk about... Um, uh, Pakistan is um, Dr. Karen von Hippel. Karen, it's an interesting point that both uh, John Dickey and Martin McCauley are putting forward, that fundamentally, should there be another international coalition needed, uh, count out the UK. Is that something you'd agree? Well, you mean, because we're all out of troops, we're all out of excess capacity? Just simply don't no want to get will. involved again on the scale um, of Iraq. Yeah, it's hard to tell, and it's really hard to tell depending on what the threat is. I think if it's a threat that uh, the Brits perceive uh, as impacting the U.K. or Europe, there there might be a different perspective. I don't think we're going to be reckless anyway in our foreign policy here in the United States, um, at least during this Obama administration. I think he's a very cautious person. I don't think he would engage in preemptive war anyway. So mm. I think that if something happens, there's there will be plenty of time to build up international support and then run up to an intervention. The Obama-Biden ticket is not the uh, Cheney-Bush ticket, is it? <laughs> no, it's a far cry from that, thankfully. Yeah. Listen, I mean, one thing that is happening is the politicians in London and Washington are at long last saying that Pakistan is the problem in the fight against terrorism, although the jargon is, is, is has changed. What's triggered this almost belated statement and emphasis of what might, some might think is the obvious? It's a good question. I mean, I think many people have recognized that Pakistan is part of the problem and has been part of the problem for some time. What, what has changed is that we're looking at both Pakistan and Afghanistan through a more integrated lens. Both countries have very, very different problems and different challenges or at different stages of development, etc. Um, but there is, of course, a connection um, all along the border. The militants go back and forth. They you know, have sanctuary in Pakistan, but then they use that sanctuary to attack, etc. So I think that now we're trying to change our bureaucracies to confront this challenge in a more integrated way than we had in the past. 
um, yeah, it's it's quite late, especially if you look at Afghanistan, seven plus years into the operation that we're only dealing with this now. And the question is, is it too late? Can we now clean up the mess that has been building up over the last seven, eight years? Well, okay. What is the pra- what in practice? What are the practical uh, things that the United States, the United Kingdom, and their allies can do to correct what they see as a near failed state of Pakistan? I mean, there are a number of things that we can do, and there are a number of things that we are doing, of course, behind the scenes, diplomatically, uh, economically, and others. Um, Pakistan is in a huge crisis, uh, financial crisis, or fuel and food shortages. Um, security is deteriorating by the day. I don't think the state is about to collapse. But one of the things I think we need to do that we haven't done as much is figure out how to partner more directly with the Pakistani people. Um, they need to see that this threat is uh, a domestic threat. It's not, they're not just fighting America's war. And too many Pakistanis think that. So when their government does respond like it has in the last few days uh, to the uh, Taliban and fighting back the Taliban, uh, you don't want the Pakistani people to say, oh, well, we're only doing this because America put pressure on us. They, you know, they have had direct attacks in their country. Um, there is an increased threat. Now, whether that threat was caused by us Originally is a different question, but the problem now is a domestic problem, and they need to, to become part of the solution. There's another side of this, and that is the economic and the aid side. I mean, Gordon Brown, I was in the Commons yesterday when he was saying that, you know, the United Kingdom is the, uh, gives the second biggest chunk of United Kingdom aid actually now goes to Pakistan, which surprised a lot of people. I mean, how is it that this uh, nuclear state needs that sort of uh, help? But by giving that help, that's part of the, you know, the, the soft war, isn't it? Right. I mean, and the U.S. has given far more mm-hmm. over the years to Pakistan. And the problem is our aid was not really conditioned on improving development and, and other uh, domestic challenges. And now, the new legislation going through the U.S. Congress um, and, and the development aid that is going to Pakistan will be more tied to um, direct changes. I think the Bush-Mashar relationship was, uh, it, it was uh, detrimental to the development of the country. They were not under pressure at all to, to deal with development indicators. Some parts of Pakistan, literacy rates are as low as 3%. So it's not surprising that uh, we're, we're dealing with enormous challenges. They need to confront them head-on. Um, and certainly not use their assistance to buy more weapons to potentially fight India. I'm just, I just begin to wonder whether the United States now sees itself fighting an offensive war and perhaps to rearguard actions. I mean, the Taliban on the Afghan border, um, but the leadership of both Afghanistan and Pakistan is in the, in the American belief that they can't control their own states. Yeah, although to different degrees. I don't think the Pakistan government is fully out of control and their military is more capable. The problem is that their military has, when they do respond, they are, there are a lot of civilian casualties. They, they are not as careful, uh, and so they cause a lot of refugees and movements of people, etc. Um, but on the Afghan side of the border as well, of course, we're leading up to elections in August, and so they are definitely in a transitional phase, and, and Karzai does appear to be weaker. Um, but I think we do recognize that there, there are different challenges, but they're both enormous. I mean, they're enormous for all of us to deal with together. It's not, you know, even the U.S. on its own couldn't do it. We need to do it in partnership with all of our allies. Karen von Hebel in Washington, thank you very much indeed. John Dickey, um, what was interesting in, in the um, Times, the London Times this morning, was the story running that uh, the chiefs of staff Chief of the General Staff and the Defence Secretary had said to uh, in Cabinet, listen, we need a couple of thousand more troops in Afghanistan. And the story runs that the Prime Minister said, no, you can have 700, and that's for the period of the election in mm-hmm. Afghanistan, not for the major issue that mm-hmm. you want them for. No, this was called by the Times uh, a shoddy retreat, and a lot of people would agree with that, because although the Prime Minister, after his visit to uh, Afghanistan, accepted and uh, stressed the strategic challenge that was presented by the situation as being the crucible of global terrorism, 
He didn't seem to respond to the military involvement that was necessary. I mean, you've got 8,300 British troops there, but to enable them to work properly in the difficulties they face, you need to give them more troops, and to merely give 700 for a period of four months is not the answer. It should have been at least 2,000 more troops, and if the Americans are putting in 21,000, a paltry 7,000 doesn't seem to be the right response of an ally. The, the frontier between Afghanistan and Pakistan is 2,500 kilometres long and you have the same people living on either side. Previously it was all in Afghanistan. Therefore the task, the military task of trying to subdue the Taliban is well now impossible. The military have been asked to do the impossible because the Afghans and Pakistanis would basically not fight their own people. The Afghans, you're asking brother to fight against brother and so on. Uh, and the territory is too large uh, to actually occupy or subdue the Taliban because you can, in fact, drive the Taliban back. But then when you leave, they'll come back and so on. And therefore, the Taliban can play the long game. So therefore, what Gordon Brown, it was interesting what he said, he, he seemed to be implying that if Afghanistan and Pakistan didn't get their house in order, Britain would actually intervene because the terrorism, Islamic terrorism in Britain, comes from Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, and the, some kind of veiled threat or uh, what are you going to do uh, basically, you talk about the crucible of terror, uh, a chain of terrorism extending into these two states. Intervening in what? The difficulty was there was no indication of any intervention at all. This is, this is the well, weakness was, of his position. He argues for the threat, but he doesn't argue for the counter-attack. He said something would have to be done. Ah, and uh, that's a familiar tone from a prime minister in Downing Street. Yeah, well, yes. well I mean, he, not just this one. <laughs> no, <laughs> yes, this one. Yes. No. It'll be the Americans who'll decide. And if mm -hmm. the Pakistani nuclear weapons uh, sites and wep and uh, facilities come under threat, you can then look forward to some kind of um, American military intervention to protect them. Tell me something else about this: um, the idea that the the, the British seem to be moving back. Now, I know that's not the plan, and that's not the perception, uh, but there is something in which the Prime Minister was talking about, the suggestion that the, the British would take on far more of a trading role, whereas the Americans would have the more front-line role in future. That is the problem, because there are 17 nations involved in Afghanistan, and they seem to be doing their own thing separately. What, 17? I thought there were more. There were about 30-odd. Well, 17 with directly oh, military, military yes. commitment, mm -hmm. and they're still doing different things in a different way. And I think until you get more coordination, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, I mean, it was it was the point was being made yesterday that uh, if you're if you're British, then the problem in Afghanistan is in let's say in Helmand. Helmand, but if, if you're, you're Canadian, if you're Dutch, it's in Kandahar, mm, yes, <coughs> etc. Et and if you're German, goodness knows where the problem is. Yes, the the Afghans who oppose the military intervention point to the fact that. Ever, for about 20 years, all Afghan males have been trained as warriors. Mm -hmm. been, uh, been, uh, uh, I would have thought that was sort of 500 years. Uh, mm -hmm. well, <laughs> well, with Kalashnikovs and so on. And they don't need, this is the point, they don't mm -hmm. need any military training. Uh, all they need to do is, in fact, just Get run, themselves them, organized. run, them, uh, run the, their own territories mm -hmm. and so yeah. on. And develop, this is the key point, you have to have economic development. Right, it's uh, we're running at 18 minutes past the hour, and uh, this is SITREP on BFBS Radio, around the forces world, and online at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen again, did you know that? You can listen again whenever you like, and download uh, the SITREP podcast from the same page where you may be listening right now. bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Now, the Shadow Chancellor, George Osborne, and the Shadow Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, are supposed to be scrutinising the defence budget for major cuts. You know, the bookies have the Tories' odds-on to form the next government, so we should know what they think. On the line from the University of Salford, Professor Eric Grove. Um, Eric, are we talking um, salami slicing or, or big cuts? Well... Salami slicing is always the easiest, um, but I suspect that, uh, one or, that one or two major programs might well be up, uh, you know, uh, might, 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 might well be on the, on the chopping block. And of course, with the Conservatives, the politics have changed significantly. I mean, the main thing defending the carrier program at the moment, politically, is the fact it's 10,000 jobs, many of them in Scotland. But with uh, no need for the carriers, in other words. Well, uh, well, whether there's a need for the carriers or not is beside the point. We're talking about defence policy. Uh, I mean, as you know, I think there's an enormous need for the carriers. I think if you want a, an air force... What do you mean, as I know? 
Well, well, I mean, you know, well, as, <laughs> as you know, Eric. Well, that's right. Well, well, I, I have supported the carriers on your program before, yes. and uh, no, I think I think it would be a tragedy if the carriers uh, and, uh, and the and the aircraft that, that, that they're going to carry are cancelled, because it would be a, a classic example of policy being made made for it for exactly the wrong reason. When are the two carriers in in in, in service? Can you twenty sixteen and twenty eighteen, I think. So, can you slip them? Well, you can slip the... Because there's a fact, $390 billion, uh, sorry, sterling bill on these things. Well, there? that's been done already, actually. They've been moved to the right, the excuse being to bring them into line with the aircraft be coming into service. But, 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 in fact, that really was a decision to spend more money over a longer period but save money in the short term. I mean, there, there are various other, 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 other projects. There's the Future Rapid Effect System that's a new speak for... Yes, Freds for modern armoured vehicles. Yeah. Uh, that well, nobody it, quite knows what it is. Well, it's it, it's a whole set of them. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of a the, the, uh, there's going to be a sort of a, a, a modern version of the tank plus armoured armoured personnel carriers. But in fact, the first part of that was was uh, was was, uh, was cancelled recently. Uh, and then, of course, there's the there's, there's the Eurofighter. Now, the, now we, we are forced to buy large numbers of Eurofighters because of the conditions we put into the contract. One hundred and twelve, wasn't it? Sorry? 112 out of the 600 and whatever it was. Something like that, if not, if not more, yes. Yeah. So, in fact, we are committed to buy, buy all these aircraft, even though we don't have the pilots to fly them. And unfortunately, because we weren't thinking of carriers w- way back when Eurofighter was being thought... Was, uh, hang was on a minute, hang on. It's Sorry. actually difficult yeah. for it to fly from aircraft carriers. Yeah. I, I, certain people tell me it might be possible, other people say it's completely impossible. Well, the idea being that the aircraft carriers are really for the Royal Air Force. They are, yes. That's the intention. That RAF aircraft will, will, in fact, all the aircraft that fly from them will be RAF. Although it is hoped that some of them will will, will be flown by, by the naval strike wing. Right, but I mean the point. Something you said there. Uh, Supposing you do sort of agree to have 112. You don't get all 112 at once. You don't have all 112 in in squadron. Um, well, well, there are the people to fly them. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, now, the, that's the bit. The, uh, no pilots. But, but there will be a very large stockpile of them, and, and in fact, uh, in fact, the, the the best thing might be if we could find some kind of buyer for some. Actually, what are you going to do? I mean, just imagine you get 112 of these uh, airplanes, I mean, which are billions of pounds we're talking about here. What They're fantastic you... aircraft. It's just that they were built for the last war, the Cold War, and uh, and, and we uh, and and they, and they don't fit to the extent that we might wish to our future air strategy. You're going to have all these airplanes with uh, in laybys on the 303 <laughs> with police aware notices on them because you have got nowhere to put them and no one to drive. Them. Well, Tell one me. would one would hope not. They tend to uh, they tend to deteriorate somewhat. I mean, I've, uh, the Eurofighter. Their only hope, insure them. I see. <laughs> I mean, the, the Eurofighter is a very impressive aircraft. Mm. It, it just is it the right aircraft for the you know for the. Okay, for the look, I'm 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 making light of this, but we shouldn't. It's Britain's no, defence. Um, um, uh, what about the A400M, the medium left lift aircraft? I mean, if you if you got rid of that, which is way behind anyway, you'd save. Close on three billion pounds. Conceivably, yes, and uh, you could probably get a cheaper substitute aircraft aircraft for it. Well, go and buy one from the Americans. Well, yes, of course. I mean, it's the it's the uh, but it's an important part of, important part of the RAF's plans. But of course, something. I mean, the the Superlinks helicopter. Of course, there are various there are various programs. But I think the key to any conservative defence review will be, like I said earlier, that the politics are going to be somewhat different now, and the politics will govern policy. I'm afraid, rather more than strategic requirements and uh, operational sense. So. Finally, there's there's there is the what is the expression Eric the the elephant in the in the hut or something like that, Trident. If Trident, you if course, you yes. if you dumped the modernisation of Trident, um, you'd come up with what a billion. Yes, but if there's something the Conservatives are not going to do, it's get rid of the nuclear deterrent. That is so key to the. I mean, even now, even with the new sort of lightish, pinkish, blue Conservatives that we have now, that's still very much deep in their strategic soul. So I think of all those, Trident modernisation is the safest. Okay, Professor Eric Grove from University of Salford, thank you very much indeed. I do apologise for people who are fans of Eric for taking the mickey a bit there, but it's it's quite bizarre. They haven't got Mm. enough... people to drive these planes. John, Eric was saying that Trident, the SLM, uh, SLBMs, mm-hmm. are quite safe. you think that's really... No, I would have a lot of hesitation about backing that. Uh, there was a debate in the House of Lords uh, two weeks ago in which a lot of senior figures, including uh, Lord Howe, formerly Sir Geoffrey Howe, the Foreign Safety, made it pretty clear that they, they, they thought this was the sort of expenditure that was totally unnecessary in an age in which we want to be concentrating on non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. <coughs> 
And I think there would be a lot of people on on that mm-hmm. side too. And I wouldn't assume automatically that uh, Trident is safe and well in, in conservative hands. Tommy, um, uh, Martin, this whole idea of um, Trident and arms control, um, which the British have always said, well, if you have nuclear arms control and we have, the, uh, we have President Obama going to uh, Moscow in July and they hope to have something to say about arms control then, um, if, the, if the Americans uh, started reducing, then the British would say, OK, we might put ours in, but they've always said that, haven't they? Yes, uh, but Britain is a junior partner here, as is France. Uh, and in many ways, the question is, uh, will you ever use it? Uh, uh, whom are you going to threaten? Who's going to threaten you? And so on. And the big partner, of course, is the America, uh, the Americans. And when they go to Moscow, uh, the Russians are desperately keen to keep as many nuclear weapons as possible because their conventional forces are quite inadequate. So therefore, they will bargain uh, away some of them, but they will want to keep a lot. And now the key thing, uh, that's one thing. The other thing is, in fact, uh, some treaty on arms sales because mm. Russia and China and Germany and France and Britain, America, are huge, uh, are huge markets for offensive uh, 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 weapons. And if some treaty could be arranged there to get the arms, contro- the arms sales under control, uh, that would be very, very useful because uh, you have countries like Iran, which almost certainly will become a nuclear power. North Korea has become a nuclear power. And uh, uh, if you uh, have some type of um, arms, arms sales agreement, uh, then perhaps you can prevent the pro- proliferation of these weapons. OK. Um, listening to that, on the line is uh, James Arbuthnot, the MP, and also the chairman of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee. Uh, we want to talk, uh, Mr Arbuthnot, about... Um, out about the reserves. Yes. But could I just ask you one thing? We've just been talking, I don't know if you've heard any of it, um, talking about the possibilities of um, having to make, for financial reasons, having to make cuts. There are some uh, quite vulnerable uh, um, items in the defence budget still, aren't there? Um, the A400M, Frez, uh, even the carriers, I suppose. Um, it seems that over the last six months, decisions have been postponed until after the election, um, partly because they're very difficult decisions, partly because there simply is no money. The trouble is the Ministry of Defence is, uh, has, has always had an appetite for equipment that was bigger than the resources that were there to pay for it, and has recently, quite rightly, decided that it needs to pay armed forces people more and to improve their barracks. Um, and the consequence is that the resources uh, are just not that. So yes, there are going to be some very vulnerable programs, whether they're the ones that you set out or whether they're other ones or whether they're the ones you set out and other ones, it's going to be very difficult to say. Uh, and these will be difficult decisions that will face a government of any colour immediately after an election. I sometimes think that when people say, well, we really ought to have another defence review, I get a sense that because of the consequences of Iraq, Afghanistan, we're actually reviewing and things are changing because of those two conflicts anyway. Well, that was precisely the question that I asked the Secretary of State for Defence when he came in front of us on Tuesday. And you're right that that review appears to be constantly going on. And he says that there is a lot of work being put in in the Ministry of Defence into a new strategic guidance. The fact remains, it needs to be done in public. We need to have a debate about how much the country really wants to spend on defence. Now, I've made no secret of the fact that I think that just over 2% of our gross domestic product is a ludicrously small amount to spend on defending our interests at home and abroad. I don't think it's right that we should be short-changing those interests and also not giving a very good experience uh, to our armed forces. I think we ought to, to give a much better experience to our armed forces so they're not constantly 
having to make do and mend and move equipment around in small quantities in order to muddle through. Uh, but yes, there are going to be some very difficult decisions ahead. One aspect, if we can come to the idea of the volunteer reserves now, or the reserves, not all volunteers, one aspect of um, the changing way of um, putting formations together on operations is the appearance of the volunteer for longer periods than ever before. I used to think, well, you know, volunteers are specialists mainly, you know, medics, interrogators, interpreters, MCV, MCMV, and that. It's no longer like that, is it? Not at all, no. If you join the reserves now, uh, the chances of your being deployed abroad are really very significant indeed. And one can say that the terms of trade have changed, but people know when they either join now or um, or decide to stay in, that that's what is going to be required of them. Uh, the concern that I have is that we are not leaving any leeway, really, for contingencies, for emergencies, for surge, for expansion in times that we are not seeing at the moment, but we could well see without any warning whatsoever. Um, so, yes, everything is changing with the reserves. And one trouble is that they are significantly uh, less large in numbers now than the establishment. So their establishment, the establishment of the reserves is meant to be just over 40,000. I would like to see it a lot larger. But actually, the number of reservists that we have is just over 30,000. And a third of those are only just beginning. So that means that those who are available on reserve, as reservists come down to about 20,000. And uh, as, as the name implies, they're meant to be a reserve. And that's far too small to act as the idea of a reserve that we always used to have. Mm. The relationship between those reserves, the reservists of all three services, and the employer, that appears to be an increasingly difficult balancing act, certainly in the sort of credit-crunching times as these. It is, it is very difficult because uh, the more pressure there is on em employers to get the most out of their employees, the harder it is for them intellectually to justify to themselves the notion that when one of their staff is off training or uh, still more off on deployment, uh, they're getting a good return from the, uh, those members of staff. I actually think they're getting an extraordinarily good return from those members of staff because of the uh, type of people that our reservists are and the skills that they gain and the um, the commitment that they give to their country is something that really does produce a good effect for the employers that they do admittedly have to leave from time to time. But when they come back, all of the skills and the commitment is there for the employers. And it's I think something that should be encouraged. There, there are, um, there, there is help that is provided by the government to employers for uh, to encourage people to employ reservists. But I hope that employers will uh, not get too stretched by uh, this awful recession that we're going through, and will continue to encourage their members of staff to do what is very important in the interests not just of the country but also of their members of staff and of themselves. James Arbuthnot, thank you very much indeed. That was James Arbuthnot, who is the chairman of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee. Uh, John Dickey, I mean, we're talking about reserves. If, if, if this was something sort of very British, but it's, it's not. I mean, look at the Americans in Iraq, uh, so many from the National Guard, for example. Indeed, many countries use reserves uh, as the basic uh, strength of, the, of their commitment. You see it in Israel. You see it in, uh, in Cyprus, for example. I mean, it's really an additional strength to the army to have these people who have their talents being used uh, in a civilian capacity and then they're transferred into the army and bring that skill and, and commitment with them. I think it's, uh, 
it's false to assume that they're just part-timers with uh, nothing uh, better to do and just serve out their, their commitment to be uh, available for a certain part of the year. Yes. Martin, uh, I mean, your lot, uh, I mean, the Russians, they got millions, it seems, of reservists. Yes, and the interesting thing is that they've decided that they're not very efficient, mm-hmm. uh, that the Russian army would be far better. It's going to scale down. Uh, to less than a million men, they should be uh, contract soldiers for up to, say, up to eight years. Uh, national service is one year. They, they don't really learn a lot in that one year, and then they leave and so on. Uh, and uh, the, the, the pool of men available now is declining all the time because of demography. So for the Russians are basically going away from their old model, which they've used for hundreds of years, is that every man, every peasant, is basically a soldier, to, uh, if you like, a professional army, which they can't afford at present, but that's their goal, because they look at the Americans, and they look at the skills of the Americans, they look at the uh, IT skills and so on, and say, we don't need peasants, we don't need people uh, who left school at the age of five, we need a select group uh, who got to fight a different All with war. iPhones, yeah. OK. But listen... We are very, we're running late. It's quiz time, though, and quiz... <laughs> gosh, I've really got to say... And quiz means prizes, OK? What does quiz mean? Surprises. 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 Anyway, listen, last week's question was very simple. What's a ghoulie chit? A ghoulie chit. Uh, Martin, you know what a ghoulie chit is. A piece is. of paper or a piece of uh, cloth uh, for a pilot or, or anybody in an aircraft overflying uh, hostile territory. If he uh, is, in fact... Uh, uh, forced to land, then the chit in the local language promises uh, the locals, whom one hopes are not too hostile, a lot of money to deliver him to the right people. Yeah, well, that's all right, as long as they don't come down over in Norfolk, I suppose. Uh, the first right answer was from... Now, listen to this. The first right answer was from Horace Crabb in Cyprus. Anybody believe... No, no, nobody here believes that. Um, <laughs> this week's question, this week's quiz, which service is known as the Andrew... Uh, a more difficult, why is it known as the Andrew? Answers to SIPREP at bfbs.com. Um, this is SIPREP on BFBS Radio around the forces world and online at bfbs.com slash SIPREP. You can listen again whenever you like and download the SIPREP podcasts from the same page as if you went there in the first place, which is where you may be listening right now. bfbs.com forward slash SIPREP. Still to come, with me in the studio, um, Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor, John Dickey, and the global affairs analyst from University College London, Dr Marley, uh, Martin McCauley, and the filmmaker, Paul Atherton. Um, in last week's SIP work, uh, SIP rep, um, uh, Martin, we heard from Professor Paul Rogers that there is a, an increasing chance that terrorists are exploring ways into the world of mm. biological, radio and chemical weaponry. And there was an exercise just out, or a demonstration just outside of Brussels, uh, a NATO demonstration on chemical, biological, radio, and nuclear CBRN. This whole thing has been overlooked, hasn't it? I mean, we've we've got to the idea, oh, well, a a terrorist might come up with a dirty bomb, but it's the biological (coughs) weaponry, which is still a far away, that is the real danger. It's the real danger because the, uh, the Genome Project, the DNA... The further we get to understand uh, the human body and the makeup of the human body, unfortunately, there's a negative side of that because somebody is then saying, ah, how can we use that uh, to defend our country or to be offensive? Uh, can we actually train soldiers? Because in the, back in the old Soviet days, they were always dreaming of producing the perfect soldier uh, who'd be a kind of human robot and so on. And uh, the Russians... Uh, biological warfare was uh, biological weapons were very very important to them because they knew that uh, when they went abroad they would run into them and so on mm-hmm. and we would like to know how far advanced uh, what has happened to all the uh, Russian projects Soviet projects on chemical biological radiological all the other uh, GRU agents used to spend an enormous amount of time didn't they the trying to find this top managers has been sacked in, in, in the GRU yes and is regarded as inefficient uh, this is a new thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> it may, in fact, mm-hmm. have nothing to do with efficiency. It may have to do with the fact that Medvedev and Putin want to put around them men whom they trust. They put mm-hmm. his deputy in charge. Yes. Uh, of but the GRU. It was, you can explain, anybody doesn't know, the GRU is the military intelligence, military the old intelligence. Uh, military version of the KGB. KGB. And they're thinking of making it subordinate to the general staff. And there's all these uh, gyrations and so on. And one wonders whether, because Russia is looking forward... Is that the right word? 
to social unrest this winter and next year. And if you were Putin and Medvedev, you'd be saying, we want the top military to be on our side. Uh, and if the opposition, the opposition will obviously try to get use, to, to get use of these new weapons. And if you look at North Korea, North Korea has, has invested a huge amount of money in producing nuclear weapons. Uh, is it also developing biological, chemical, if it's got the, the, the technical ability to do that, what about mm -hmm. chemical, biological and all the other weapons? I tell you what, John, <laughs> apart from being frightened, um, I was looking at some of the statements about this swine flu, swine fever or whatever, although in Washington they no longer call it swine fever. And that apparently is because the supermarkets have got loads of pork oh, on yes. their shelves. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. No, no, but yeah. the ministers here are continually saying, perfectly safe, yeah. eat pork, no No, 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 it's true, I read it in the Daily News. <laughs> but the, um, the, interesting, but the interesting thing is mm. that if you look at the pandemics from 1918, mm. which killed like 50 million people, yeah. if you look at 1978 and so on, uh, pigs were always involved because genetically pigs and humans are quite close. So therefore, Some it's of my not surprising family, yeah. that this uh, pandemic will be, in fact, uh, pork-related. But what is interesting is the preparation to... Uh, deal with a pandemic. You see some of the things that are coming out, the scientific offices are in mm. place, uh, dusting down the emergency centres, uh, problems of planning with a um, job with a overcrowded hospitals, transport, mm. industry gets shut down. It's society at its most vulnerable and there's not a mushroom cloud in sight. No, it's an instinct legacy of the Asian flu uh, a few years ago that people realised that this had to be um, prepared for in a much more scientific way. So you got instant reaction uh, from the Scottish uh, Minister of Health, uh, isolation of the initial contacts that came back from honeymoon in Mexico. And so this has been so coordinated on a regional basis in a way that wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the Asian flu crisis. It's interesting also, um, Martin McCauley, that uh, the who's going to get jabbed? I mean, they haven't got a vaccine They haven't vaccine got a vaccine yet. and it hasn't been developed because... But somebody's got to get jabbed because there are people who've got to run the country, people who've got to run the armed forces. Yes, yeah. there are two, apparently... Uh, Viral... Yeah, two things that you can give a patient, but there's no guarantee it will be effective. And also because this... Uh, uh, the viral... Uh, the, vi the, the virus has mutated. Mm. And therefore, because it's mutated then you have to do research and mm. you have to come up with uh, something to counter it. Right. Uh... Just a quick one, Paul. Mm -hmm. Public, uh, they sort of look, they are quite scary. It, 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 some of the responses people get, and they're starting buying, buying in, for example, masks, face masks. Yeah. There's uh, even sort of, uh, what's his name, Banksy, <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 the graffito uh, yeah. artist. He's actually designing face masks now as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but films being issued uh, but, to, I mean, to warn the public. It is, it is a scary one, isn't mm. it? Yeah, well, I... I I think it's really interesting because I think probably of all the times that we've had sort of the fear of a pandemic in bird flu and everything else that we've had over the last sort of 10, 10 years, um, that this one seems to be the most well-organised. And at, at this point, it is so unknown about what's happening. They're saying that the normal flu vaccinations are some resistance to what's going on. Yeah. Um, but I think what's most interesting is how all the papers are covering it now. Everybody's got a scare, mm. scare headline. It's sort of five or six pages. Everybody's contradicting themselves as they always do. It's in interesting. These times. The headlines. Are, I mean, they'll be there tomorrow. But if you take today's handover to the Americans in Iraq, that'll make the headlines. But the constant headlines now are all about um, hankies. Yeah. Yes, hankies. Yeah. And they like uh, the fear factor you see sells newspapers. And it looks good on television. It grabs, it one grabs thing, attention. Can I say one thing that doesn't sell, sell newspapers, apart from the credit crunch, um, is the uh, is arms sales. Um, you might almost ask what credit crunch. The Stockholm International Peace Research, Research Institute, SIPRI, has this week published its latest survey on arms sales. Uh, it does it on a regional basis. This one's on arms sales in the Middle East. On the line, Mark Bromley from the Arms Transfers Programme at CIPRI in Stockholm. Um, Mark, who are the big buyers? Um, yes. Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the database that we have, we've been collecting, CIPRI's been collecting data on international transfers of major conventional weapon systems since the mid-60s. We now have a comprehensive database of all 
uh, such transfers from 1950 to the end of 2008, and we've just released the updated figures. Um, I mean, the data that the latest sort of data shows that a big increase, particularly in transfers to the Middle East. Uh, so we kind of measure transfers over a kind of period of five years. And over the last five years, transfers to the Middle East have gone up by about 38%. There's also been in big increases in transfers to Latin America, where uh, transfers almost doubled over the course of the last five years. Do we know why, for example, to the Middle East? Well, of course, um, you know, there's different reasons why why different countries uh, make purchases. I mean, these things, the database that we have goes back quite a long way, and we can, we can see from that that these things uh, tend to be quite cyclical, of course. Um, over the past five years, we've seen high oil prices, uh, which, of course, have boosted the uh, spending power of countries in the Middle East. We've also seen a range of different conflicts and instabilities in the region, and those have also uh, boosted arms sales. And we've also seen a big push on the part of the, uh, on the suppliers to... Uh, to sell arms to the region for different for different purposes, particularly the Bush administration was quite proactive in uh, in selling weapon systems to its friends and allies in the region over the last couple of years. What about um, international arms sales control? Are there any treaties protocols that prevent certain weapons being sold? Well, I mean, such the development of such mechanisms has been has been discussed for for a very long time. There, there were actually discussions in 1920s under the old League of Nations uh, to set up a kind of international treaty governing uh, arms sales. But nothing, nothing at the UN level, at the kind of truly international level, has ever been established. There are different regional agreements. So, for instance, the EU has a set of kind of best standards and practices which, which member states are meant to apply in their, in their export licensing decision-making. Uh, but there's never been anything established at the UN level. There are now discussions ongoing on the creation of an international arms trade treaty, and the UK government, along with others, has been has been pushing that process, and that's now uh, being discussed within the UN. Mm. I mean, one of the problems, frankly, isn't it, is is that if uh, a company makes a weapon system, they've got some very good salesmen, and they say, "Who is likely to buy it? Go out and sell it," and it's straightforward business. It's nothing to do with you know whether a country actually needs um, um, a two you know, two hundred and fifty aircraft is the fact they can afford to buy them. Mm. Well, I mean, there is obviously it is you know in many ways it's a business like any other, but in in certain crucial respects, of course, it's 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 completely different to any other sort of business, and and governments on the whole do recognise that. Um, all states in the world recognise the need to have kind of effective controls on the export of, of weapon systems. Uh, and the standards they apply obviously vary significantly from country to country. On one end of the spectrum, you have countries that simply don't want to sell arms that are then going to get used against their own forces, so a kind of a self-interest, so to speak. Whereas in other countries, you have certain you know, standards and norms with regards to human rights and economic development being applied, and states are trying to be a lot more kind of restrictive. But I think just across the board, there is a recognition that this is not a business like any other and that controls do need to be enforced. Mark, where can somebody download this? Because I'm, I got a copy and it really makes fascinating reading. I mean, it also tells you a heck of a lot about the sort of geopolitics, the sort of things that if you're in the services, for example, you really do need to know sometime. Where can mm -hmm. we get one? Well, if, if you go to our website, which is uh, cipri.org, uh, then you can find a, a wealth of different kind of analyses about the international arms trade. But also... I guess more important, you can actually gain direct access to our database. So if you want to get a complete picture of all transfers to Saudi Arabia since 1970, just uh, press a couple of buttons and then and there it is on screen. Right. Um, so, yeah, we'd encourage your listeners to go and take a look. There's an MA dissertation coming off here. I can hear that. <laughs> Mark Bromley, thank you very much indeed. And we don't plug things, but Cipri, S-I-P-R-I. Case insensitive, cipri.org. Worth having a look. Um, talking about having a look, um, Paul Atherton sitting here very patiently and sort of putting in his two bits. Um, we've just made his most remarkable film. I watched a preview. Uh, it's a short film. It's going to Cannes. Um, yeah, well, we we failed to get in competition in Cannes, unfortunately, but it's it's been submitted to a whole variety of competitions. Yeah, like we'll be later in the... Places like that. But it's called Colourblind. It is indeed. 
and it's 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 i think is the race still is one of the most sensitive if not only for the british forces but historically a most uh, sensitive subject in not just in white but white based societies no completely and utterly globally i mean it's it's one of the most uh, reasons for most conflict yeah and it's still the reason for most conflict yeah. because of what it represents yeah, it, it 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 either stems out of religion or from race, and that, you know that's basically it. And people are fighting over the same piece of land for one or the other. Those reasons. Yeah, I got an impression from I mean from the film. Um, it's not giving anything away. I think when you say, "Look, um, you're sitting across the table with a fellow who is black," mm-hmm. and the more you get on, if you're white, the less black he is. Yeah. And if I'm white, the more we get on the more coloured I might be. Eh? <laughs> it can work both ways, both ways. can't it? Yeah. And, and in fact, that's, that is a metaphor. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the whole purpose of the film, really, was to kind of question people's understanding of how we see each other. And one of the fundamentals for us was that the perception from, uh, certainly from the black communities, was that every white person sees them as, as a, a parody of themselves, really. Whereas the actual normality of an, an encounter like that is that a white person, once they've got social cultural references, will ignore pretty much everything. They, they just engage with the human being in front of them and therefore colour has no bearing on them. So that was the import of it and that, that was why the colour changes were happening on uh, on the black character when we see through the eyes of the white person. But then when on the converse, when you see through the eyes of the black person, it's a very, very different version. And it is all about perception. It's a perception of how we see each other and a perception of how we think other people see us. When we want to talk about it, we have to be more than careful because of our own perceptions, not because society general is is so screwed up about it no absolutely i and and that that was kind of the the irony to me is that you know we are now trapped in this this nonsense where everybody's scared to talk about race in a reasonable way and this is one of the things that the film's designed to do is designed to get a debate where we're not pussyfooting around the subject we're saying well look this is how it really is rather than worrying about whether we use one word or another word that's going to somehow offend half a dozen people in the middle of nowhere yeah yeah martin mccauley i think it depends on whether you're pursuing a common goal uh, if you're all mathematicians trying to solve a problem, well, the person black or yellow or something is irrelevant because it's a problem which is you concentrate on the problem and the person's face or what it looks like, you just listen to his views and so on. But if, the, if you're in a confrontational position, like you support Chelsea and uh, the other team, uh, Arsenal and so on, uh, and you see their best players uh, and you don't like them and they're black, you say, ah! I don't like him. Uh, and you concentrate on the fact he's black. You see, you don't like him. He's, he's from Africa. So I'm like, you don't like him because he's your opponent and so on. So that, that's, that's a very important... Uh, John, can I in fact bring you in on this? Because, I mean, one of the things I'd hope to talk about a bit is, is the British Commonwealth. Now, the modern Commonwealth was... When was the 26th of April? 1949, so 60 London, years London ago. Agreement, yes. Now, there is a perfect example of, in theory, in theory, that whether you're white, whether you're brown, whether you're black, doesn't matter because you have a com- what Martin's talking about, a common wealth. And in, in practice, too. I mean, it's not the British Commonwealth, it's the Commonwealth. But uh, it embraces two billion people in all five continents, and half of these two billion are under 25. And it has established all sorts of networks at professional level, at... Uh, social level that really bind people together in a way of creating a family. And it's one thing that the Queen has always set great store on. She's visited every Commonwealth country many times and she always goes to the heads of government meeting, wherever it is, and uh, spends time with all the leaders of the countries as well as visiting the people. And I think it has provided a a glue that has kept a lot of nations together otherwise would not have been so. Paul, I mean, looking at that, that's on the grand international scale with um, remarkable personalities involved. When you come to make your film, who do you aim it at? Well... Or do you aim it? Well, we do, really. I mean, I, I, it's quite interesting because the scriptwriter and myself actually came from two different angles at it. I, I came from a very personal angle. I was brought up in a small Welsh village um, uh, by a white family. So I had a, just an entirely white upbringing. So my worldview, 
I just engaged with the world. My mother said, don't worry about your skin colour, it'll have no impact, and that bore out through my life. And then came to London and started meeting black communities. And they looked at it in a completely converse. They, they, the skin colour was first and foremost, and then they would be impacted by that. And that was kind of what really prompted me to get involved in it. Now, um, Amanda Baker, who's a Korean-American that's based mm. here and writes for a black uh, American stand-up called Reginald D. Hunter, um, started, they were in Ireland, and it was how racist some of the Irish, and it wasn't racist in any overt, no, it was very overt, but it, it was just inherent. It wasn't actually thought about. Um, and they, 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 they were quite surprised at how affected they were by it. So she came back, and one of the things that she came back with was, you know, we've got to change people's perceptions. So we're trying to aim this at people that just focus on colour. I have to say, I, I seem to remember Amanda. Um, Amanda has bleached white hair, hasn't she? she? It. <laughs> <And> it really. <laughs> I said, "Are you trying to tell me something?" She says, "No." <laughs> no. Can I just turn this uh, this whole thing because we're talking about perceptions? I was going to talk uh, to some extent about the um, yesterday. I mean, which was quite politically humiliating defeat for the government over the the, the question of the Gurkhas, who and how many retired Gurkhas can settle if they wish in in, in Britain. Um, but it raises another point which involves what you're doing, Paul, and what we're thinking about all the time, and that is the way a society, the way society feels, and the government perceptions of those feelings. John, it it has changed remarkably, hasn't it? I think it just demonstrated yesterday how out of touch people in Downing Street were with the ordinary people in the street. They didn't have to watch the people in Parliament Square, all these magnificent Gurkhas with their medals and the delightful um, Joanna Lumley uh, supporting him because her father was a Gurkha officer. No, it, it was just a great vote for decency, and uh, despite the fact of uh, the Home Secretary sending emails to try and persuade people during the actual debate to fall in line, it didn't work. The people just thought this was a case of a shameful treatment of people who were prepared to die for their country, not yet being allowed to live okay, in their country. Okay, Martin, but the whole thing about them, they were mm. Gurkhas, and there's a romantic mm. view here as well, isn't there? Yes, and they are magnificent soldiers. And the, the new Nepalese uh, Maoist government tried to ban uh, Gurkhas uh, or Nepalis from joining the Gurkhas and so on. Uh, and uh, they had to uh, turn tail and, and uh, drop the opposition and so on. So, and there's, the, the Gurkhas have this reputation uh, of, of being uh, among the best soldiers in the world and so the on. The bravest of the brave. The bravest mm. of the braves uh, and so on. But I suspect that the government's opposition to allowing so many to settle here was purely economic. As somebody said, uh, if they all come here, what's the social security budget? How does it increase? And we've got to cut it down. I suspected it practically nothing to do with the Gurkhas. But, Paul, uh, let's get back to this perception thing. I mean, it's the public perception, Gurkhas, great soldiers, um, and therefore we ought to do things for them. It's, it's a te- I mean, apart from it's a terribly patronising way of looking, <laughs> mm. looking at the whole, the whole issue, mm. it, it does tell us something about our society now, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I totally agree um, with Dickie that, that it's totally detached. You know, the, the government have a, a, a worldview that has nothing to do with the common man there. And I, I think I think British perception of, of a lot of these things um, are totally different to A, how the media perceive it, and, and B, how the government perceive it. And I, I think people are genuinely decent overall. I mean, I, I've travelled the length and breadth of the country and I've, I've lived in all different kinds of environments. And the one thing that you seem to come above all else is that there is some kind of common decency amongst everybody. And when, John, it, this decency is, is, is touched upon for, for example, going to war in Iraq, and when a, a million people walk through Westminster and say, no, 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 it's a decent idea, we don't want to go, government can ignore that. To a certain extent, yes, but, I mean, yesterday was proof that they couldn't ignore that, and this is the the great thing. It's not happened since 1978 when the tossing Callaghan government was defeated. I mean, this was a signal to all governments that you cannot take for granted the basic decency of the British um, population. I mean, these are things that are not settled in, in corridors with, you know, three-line whips. They're settled by people thinking, what is the right thing to do? And it does happen, as it did yesterday. Martin, does it strike you, though, that society in this country, or these islands, rather, has changed? Yes, 
Or has it changed, or is it just showing a different facet? Uh, it, if you look at the popular culture over the last 10, 20 years, uh, it is changing and has changed. But if you come to an issue, an issue such as right and wrong, the underdog and so on, uh, the British society seems to go back to what it was before, say, 20, 30, because people are comparing the... Uh, the uh, period after 1945 when people, it was make and mend and uh, you couldn't have uh, any any wealth and now, and you have to go back to that, you have to go back to the values of the, of uh, previous days. Right, well the values of this day are, are slipping away from us because we're about to go. That's it for this week. My thanks to John Dickey, to Martin McCauley and to Paul Atherton and of course, in the hut, to Mary Wilton. Don't forget the quiz which surface is called the Andrew? Uh, a more difficult, why is it known as the Andrew? Answers to SIPREP at bfbs.com.